0: Father, we thank you for another opportunity you've given us to come before you into your presence and to sing your praises and to encourage one another through song and through the reading of your word, Lord, and through our fellowship with one another. We thank you, Father, that when we came to you in faith, uh, you quickly adopted us into your family because of what our Lord Jesus Christ did to save us. And not only that, but through your Holy Spirit, you entered into us to take up residence within our hearts, Lord. And so when we fellowship with one another, because you are present within us, Lord, we are also fellowshipping with you. Lord, I pray that you would more and more make us that sweet smelling savor to one another as your presence within us permeates every aspect of our lives. And Lord, as we come to your word in Psalm 8, may you use this Psalm to make us more like yourself Um, Make us those who are emptied of ourselves and filled with your spirit so that we may be a blessing to you and to each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to the 8th Psalm. It's what we read for our call to worship, and I'll read it again for us. It's a Psalm of David, and this is what it He wrote, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The 16th century theologian John Calvin said that believers should, quote, not be ashamed to take pious delight in the works of God, open and manifest in this most beautiful theater, unquote. This most beautiful theater that he spoke of is the physical world of nature in which we live. God's creation is one in which he has put his glory on display. Indeed, that's the purpose for which he made everything. He made it to showcase his glory, all that he is. He intends for the sun and the trees and the grass that you walk on when you go outside, or the snow this time of year, or the stars that you look up at night. He intends for it all to reveal something of his majesty to you. And there are many elements of God's creation, and some of those elements are very obvious in how they declare the glory of God to us. But there are other elements of his world that are not so obvious in accomplishing that. It takes a bit of thinking to figure out how God intends to glorify himself through this thing that he has made. In this eighth psalm, we find David doing just that. He's thinking. He's considering the works of God's hands and how it is that those works bring him glory. Now there's one part of God's world that is very in your face with the glory of God and we'll find in this psalm that there is also another part of God's creation that is far more subtle and unexpected in how it declares to you the glory of God. Through this psalm we are going to encounter both aspects of God's creation and we are going to be humbled by the realization of our own smallness and yet at the same time we're going to be encouraged by the grace that God has shown us in bestowing upon us, us weak small people, the immense privilege of showing forth his glory. And we're also going to be brought to the realization that the only way that we can come into the full experience of that privilege is through Jesus Christ. So first we're going to take a look at verses one through four. And in these four verses, we are going to see two very different theaters, two very different theaters in which God puts his glory on display. And in verses one and two, we're going to see that there's a very large theater and there's a very little theater. Verse one says, "'O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.'" who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. David here addresses God as Yahweh. That's what Lord in all caps is signifying. The Hebrew that lies behind that name is the name Yahweh. And David calls him our Lord. God, the great I am, is the sovereign ruler of his people. And as his people, we gladly own him as our Lord. We are thankful. We've just sung about the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of God, and it makes us thankful that he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our ruler. There's nobody else we would rather have than him as our master and our ruler if we are truly trusting in Christ today. We've been brought to the realization that I'm a very poor master of my own life. I need Christ. I want him to rule over me. And David exclaims in this first verse, How majestic is your name in all the earth. As we've seen before, God's name is all that God is and all that God does. We see this back in Exodus 33 after the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt and they've affirmed that they will be faithful to the Lord. And then Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law And what do the people do while he's up there? They make an idol for themselves to worship. They immediately violate the commitment they made with God. And Moses is distraught over this, and God reveals his mercy by not instantly wiping out his people. And in chapter 33 of that book, verses 18 to 19, Moses pleads with God, show me your glory. He wants to see more of who God is. And God tells him that he is going to proclaim his name. He's going to proclaim his name to Moses. And so he puts Moses in a little cleft of the rock and he causes his glory to pass in front of Moses. And what does God say in proclaiming his name? Verses 6 to 7 of chapter 34 says this, Then the Lord, Yahweh, passed by in front of him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That's his name. It's not just Yahweh, but Wrapped up in that name is all that God is. David says in Psalm 8, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The majesty of God's name, that is the beauty and the power of God's name, permeates all of creation. There is no one alive, there is no one who's ever lived who has been ignorant of it or isolated from it. That's something that Romans 1 makes very clear to us. Romans chapter 1, we're very familiar with this passage. But Romans 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do they suppress it? Verse 19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why is it evident? For God made it evident to them. For, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How are they clearly seen? Being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. You see, the majesty of God's name is inescapable. You cannot run from it or hide from it. God's creation as a pedestal upon which various aspects of his name shine forth. And in verse 1 of Psalm 8, David says that this Lord has displayed his splendor above the heavens or upon the heavens. Yahweh has chosen to set his splendor upon the heavens like a jeweler sets a brilliant diamond upon a gold ring. David says that God has displayed his splendor there. When you look up at the night sky, you're led to think about the one who placed every star in its position in that night sky. And you have to actively suppress the truth and unrighteousness in order to look up at that sky and not think of the one who made it. It just shouts the glory of God to us. It's obvious. In this verse, we see the earth and the heavens serving as the theater, the very large theater in which God displays his majesty and splendor. But in verse 2, we see a second unexpected theater in which God is pleased to display his glory. Verse 2, he says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. That word rendered established it has the primary meaning of founding something or laying a foundation. So it's as though God has chosen to pour the concrete slab of his strength through the mouths of infants. He uses the weakest of all vessels through which to pour out and manifest his omnipotent strength. Isn't that quite a contrast from verse 1? We've gone from all the earth and the heavens displaying the majesty and the splendor of God to tiny, helpless babies. That's quite a contrast. And from a worldly perspective, you would not expect God to choose to use such weak instruments through which To wield his strength. Why not use something or someone who is more obviously strong, big, and mighty? Well, David explains in verse 2. He says, because of your adversaries. To make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That's why God uses weak things to show forth his glory. God uses the weak to shame the strong. To frustrate the plans of those who place their confidence in their own strength rather than in the strength of God. We saw this when we started walking through the book of 1 Corinthians together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. Remember what Paul says here? He says, "...for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble." But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why does God work that way? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. This second verse of Psalm 8, Jesus would take upon his own lips. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We see Jesus quote this verse that speaks of God. God is the one who, through the mouths of infants, displays his strength. And yet we see Jesus applying this verse to himself. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, Jesus has just Uh, proclaimed himself king by riding in on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the scriptures that say that the king, the Messiah, would be presented to Israel in that way. Verse 12, this is after that. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, now we know who these people are. They very much fit the description of verse 2 of Psalm 8, don't they? They are the adversaries of Christ. They are the enemy of Christ. They are the revengeful. They're seeking his death. That's who these people are. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And then look at what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Who are they praising? They're praising Jesus. And Jesus points back to Psalm 8, verse 2, which speaks of God and says that this is an application to myself. These little children could see what the chief priests and the scribes could not see. Turn back with me to chapter 11 of this same Gospel of Matthew. Just to Give you one more illustration of this principle. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus pronounces woe upon these cities because they refuse to recognize Jesus Christ and believe on him and submit to him as their Messiah. And then, in contrast, verse 25, Jesus pronounces blessings on those who have trusted in him and look at how he describes those who have come to know who he is verse 25 at that time jesus said i praise you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to who infants yes father for this way was well pleasing in your sight God loves to show himself strong through those who cannot take any credit for it. God loves to reveal himself to those who have abandoned all hope in anything else other than him. Isn't that the the lesson that Paul learned through his thorn in the flesh when God said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in your weakness. And because of that, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 Verse 9, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that's how God uses weak things, insignificant things, to put his glory on display. Little theaters are very effective in showcasing the glorious might of God. That brings us to verses 3 and 4 where we see the fixed versus the fleeting. The fixed versus the fleeting. In Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, David dwells on this contrast between these two theaters. But he shifts slightly from thinking about the heavens and babies to thinking about the heavens and mortal men, who really are not much less helpless than babies when compared with the heavens. And as I read verses 3 and 4, picture David staring up into the clear night sky and saying these words. He says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You can relate to this, can't you? There are not many sights that affect me more than when I'm standing in the countryside away from man-made artificial lighting of towns and cities, and it's just very dark out, and maybe there's no moon in the sky, but the, the sky is very clear, and all of the stars are just shining forth brilliantly. I feel like I could just look at that for hours and not get bored with it. But when you take time to look up, you're instantly made to feel... Very small, aren't you? And when you realize that what you're looking at is only one little corner of the Milky Way galaxy, and when you think about the fact that there are literally hundreds of billions of galaxies flung across the whole universe, that feeling of your smallness only grows stronger. And then you think about the one who put it there and how powerful This God is, how sovereign He is, how beautiful He must be to make something as beautiful as that, something that we cannot even comprehend being able to do. You consider His unfathomable craftsmanship as He created these immense burning balls of fire, along with planets of gas and liquid and rock that revolve around them. And then you consider that they've all been burning and floating through the vacuum of space for millennia and that the Lord knows them each by name. That's what it says in Psalm 147, 4. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, he knows them all by name. Every planet and every star that make up the billions upon billions of galaxies that mankind has not yet explored. This is what David is looking at. He didn't have pictures of the Hubble telescope that were sent back to us. But just what he sees is enough to render him feeling small. And so he says, God, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? This combination of words describing mankind, man or Enosh, the son of man, Ben-Adam, son of Adam, Used together, they often emphasize man's earthliness and mortality. For example, go over with me to Psalm 90. We see this combination of words here. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses says, "'Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations.'" Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in verse 3, we see this combination of words. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children, or O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You've swept them, that is mankind, away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Verse 10, As for the days of our life, they contain seventy years, or if due to strength, eighty years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Then go over to Psalm 144. Verses 3 and 4, we see this this combination of terms for man again. Verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Back in Psalm 8, verse 4, David is highlighting our earthliness, our mortality, our brevity, our fleeting nature. The moon and the stars that we see at night, I don't know if you've ever considered this, are the same moon and stars that Adam and Eve looked at when they were created 6,000 years ago. And if you count a generation as 30 years by modern reckoning, that's 200 generations that have passed, billions upon billions of lives lived and finished since the time of Adam and Eve. Our earthly lives are incredibly transitory and fleeting compared to those fixed orbs that are in the night sky. So David asks, what is man that you think of him or remember him? Oftentimes, God's remembering someone involves his acting on their behalf for their good. Why does God do that for man who is like a breath vanishing into cold air? I think about when I was studying this verse, I was thinking about how oftentimes driving up from Chittango on Route 13 during May, and your windshield is getting splattered by these mayflies who are only going to live for a couple of weeks, and you don't think about them, you don't care about them, you're just upset that they are just totally marring your windshield and obstructing your view as they splatter against the windshield. That's like what we are, like mayflies compared to what we see in the sky. Why does God care about us? I don't care about the mayflies that I'm just demolishing on my way down the road. David asks, what is the Son of Man that you care for him? Why does God concern himself with those who are made from dust and quickly returned to the dust. Compared to what he sees in the night sky, mankind is almost nothing. And these are rhetorical questions that David is asking. He's not looking for an answer. David is not asking these questions as one who doesn't know the answer, so much as he's asking them as a way to, in a manner of speaking, declare the littleness and the brevity and the apparent insignificance of man compared to what he sees in the night sky. Now, it's easy to acknowledge the helplessness of babies. It's pretty clear their vulnerability to us. We can clearly see that. But when you and I grow up to maturity and we can take care of ourselves, we can get prideful and we can forget that we are still very much helpless. And if we had paused long enough to look up at the stars on a clear night and meditate upon who it is that put them there, that will go a long way in humbling us and bringing us to a proper estimation of ourselves. David was a king, a mighty king, but one long look up reminded him of how little he was. Yet as we'll see next, God has chosen to use us little weak people to be the crowning theater of his majesty this brings us to our second point in verses five through eight where we see the vested dignity of man we see the dignity that god has vested man with that he has bestowed upon man and it's very surprising in these verses five through eight david gives us a statement that is just as shocking as what he said in verse two We're surprised that God uses helpless babes to shame and stop his enemies. And what we've just seen in verses 3 and 4 should make it equally surprising to us that David says what he says in verses 5 through 8. It's clear that what David is about to say in these verses, he's gotten this information from Genesis 1. But he beautifully rephrases it here in poetic form. But before we start walking through verses 5 through 8, let's turn back to Genesis 1 so that we can see what truth David is drawing upon as he writes this song. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth." Now let's go back to Psalm 8 and read verse 5. David says, "...yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty." Before we move on, just as an aside, The word translated God, in my translation, is the Hebrew word Elohim. And in the vast majority of cases, that word Elohim means God. But there are contexts in which it is translated as gods, lowercase g, plural, when it's referring to pagan false gods. And there's only a couple of contexts, including this one, where it could be argued to be translated as angels. And I bring this up because some of your Bibles in verse 5, instead of saying you've made him a little lower than God, may say you've made him a little lower than angels or heavenly beings. Now, I lean strongly toward God as being the correct translation here, but whichever way you go does not seem to greatly alter the meaning of this verse. But I, I lean toward God because he's clearly drawing on Genesis 1. And man was made in the image of who? God, not angels. And I've got other reasons, but I won't bore them with you here. If you're interested, see me afterward. But either way, however you translate it, David is saying that the Lord has made man just a tick below the most exalted of statuses, more exalted than the sun than the moon and the stars. And this statement that the Lord has made man a little lower than God is shocking given how insignificant man was seen to be in verses 3 and 4. The Lord's creation of man in his image and his positioning of man as ruler over all creation is described here by David as the Lord making him a little lower than God and crowning him with glory and honor. Now, what does David mean when he says that man was made a little lower than God and that he was crowned with glory and honor. Well, as I said before, it it seems to be just another way of saying what Genesis 1 verse 26 said. Man was created in the image of God and he was given rule over all creation. And indeed, verse 6 confirms this understanding because in verse 6, David is just saying in a couple different ways what he has said in verse five. He says, you make him to rule or you make him Lord over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Just to help us understand the significance of this, turn back with me to Genesis 41. Because I think we see here a great illustration of what God did with mankind in this narrative here. In Genesis chapter 41, this is about Joseph and his interaction with Pharaoh. And remember Joseph, he was sold by his brothers into slavery because they didn't like him very much. And God showed favor upon Joseph and caused him to rise up In the household of the one he was enslaved to but then uh, joseph was accused of being improper in his behavior toward his master's wife and he was thrown in jail but even in the jail god again showed favor to him and made him the chief man under the jailer and then he comes into contact with a couple of former officials of pharaoh who have dreams that they do not understand And Joseph is able to give them the right interpretation. And he says, remember me when you are released from prison. Well, they don't remember him. They forget about him. And he's left languishing there. But then Pharaoh has a dream that he doesn't understand. And it occurs to the one surviving official, oh, I know a guy who can tell you what your dream meant. And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and gives him the correct interpretation of his dream. And in chapter 41, verse 38, we see the aftermath of this. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh... Yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. You see what's happening there. Joseph was in prison, weak, and Pharaoh takes him and sets him over all the land of Egypt and withholds only the throne from him. In other words, Pharaoh made Joseph just a little lower than himself, And like Pharaoh gave control to all of Egypt, to Joseph, and withheld only the throne from him, so at creation, God gave control over all his works to mankind, only withholding his divine throne from him. He made him a little lower than himself. And God subjected all creation under his feet. Now what does it mean to have someone subjected or something subjected under your feet? It means to be under that person's rule and control. Think of Jesus' triumphal entry in Matthew 21. What did the disciples put on the back of that donkey before Jesus got on it? Their cloaks. And what did people spread in the road before Jesus as he walked over them on that donkey? Their cloaks, signifying what? That they were subjecting themselves under his feet to be ruled by him. That's what is happening here. God has given rule over all creation to mankind. Back in Psalm 8, verses 7 and 8, David goes on to give some examples of what has been placed under man's feet. And again, we see here clear echoes of Genesis 1. He says, All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Isn't that astonishing in the light of verses 3 and 4? Again, what is man that you think of him or take care of him? Why didn't God make a creature a bit more impressive to accomplish this glorious work of rule through? Well, a clue to that answer, to the answer to that question is found back in verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The weaker the vessel through which God's glory shines, the more we focus on God instead of the instrument he chooses to use. Now thinking about Psalm 8 and what David has just said in verses 5 through 8 about mankind, how does that compare to your present experience in this world? Are you experiencing all things being subjected to your feet? Well, yes and no. Maybe you've had some success in training a dog. Maybe you've been able to build a cupboard, or you've come to a deeper understanding of how God's world works, and you can, to some degree, bend it to your own designs. But every time you and I gather next door around a hole, That we're going to lower a loved one into and bury, we are reminded that not all things are subjected to us. Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8, seem very far out of reach at those times. And we have to ask what happened between Genesis 1 and now that has prevented us from experiencing Psalm 8? Well, we know what happened. Genesis 3 happened. Sin happened. Paradise was lost due to our sinful rebellion against God. And ever since Adam ate that forbidden fruit, verses 5 through 8 have ceased to be a full-fledged reality in our experience. Every day we experience instead the consequences of man's fall into sin. Do you remember what God said to Adam after his sin in Genesis 3, 17 to 19? He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We were originally created to be as enduring as the sun and the moon and the stars of heaven. But because of our sin, we were sentenced to death, and we were barred from being able to eat of the tree of life. And hence, we are the frail and fleeting creatures that we experience ourselves to be. The preacher in the book of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 2 of his sermon. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. The preacher to this Jewish congregation writes For he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the Son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. The preacher sees that, he sees how expansive this bestowing of dignity upon mankind was, that nothing was left not subject to him. But what does he go on to say in verse 8? But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In verses 6 to 8 there, the preacher quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, and in Hebrews 2, verse 8, the preacher recognizes that we do not experience the fullness of what David was describing in those verses. But then he looks to Jesus, whom in chapter 1 of Hebrews, the preacher is just finished describing as the Son of God, describing him as the King, as God and conqueror of all, someone who's infinitely superior to the angels. And the preacher says in chapter 2, verse 9, that this Jesus became man. That is, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. And the preacher here, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which translated Elohim of Psalm 8:5 as angels rather than God. And that translation suits his purposes here. But back to chapter 2, The preacher continues to apply Psalm 8 to Jesus when he says that Jesus, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor. Being made a little lower than the angels, he was crowned with glory and honor. But notice what the cause of his crowning was. What does it say there? Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And notice what the result of his crowning is. Crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There was no death in the original creation. There was no need at that time to die in order to achieve what God designed man to achieve. God had already placed that on man. It was sin that brought death into the equation. It was sin and the result of it being death that prevented us from doing what God created us to do. And so do you see what God has done? God became a man so that he could take the penalty that we earned, death, upon himself, so as to reverse what we had brought upon all creation. God the Son, by taking on human flesh, made himself a little lower than God in his humanity. Of course, he never ceased being God, but in taking on human nature with respect to his humanity, he was made lower than God, a little lower than God. Or in the words of Hebrews, a little lower than the angels. Why did he do that? Why did God make himself a little lower than himself by taking on humanity. He did it so that he could die, so that he could take upon himself the penalty for our sins and die as a man in order to bring us back to paradise and to raise us back to the full experience of Psalm 8, 5 through 8. Is that not amazing when you think about it? Our third point for Psalm 9 is the vibrant doxology to God. One last New Testament text we're going to go to that quotes Psalm 8:6 again is one we've studied recently, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. So turn back there, 1 Corinthians 15. And this is going to lead us into that last verse of Psalm 8, verse 9. So as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, let me read verse 9 of Psalm 8 to you. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 24, Paul is speaking of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. As Jesus rose, his people will rise, and after that will come the end. We see that verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. In verse 25, Paul says that Jesus must reign until this occurs, when all his enemies are placed under his feet. That's something that God the Father promised Jesus Christ. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Father promised his Son that he would place all of his enemies under his feet. And Jesus was to sit at his right hand until that occurred. In verse 26, Paul says the last enemy that will be abolished is death itself. And then comes verse 27, where Paul gives as the reason that death is going to be abolished, he gives us the reason for that: the fact that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Verse twenty-six: the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And that, of course, is Psalm eight-six. He's put all things in subjection under his feet, and Paul is applying this specifically to Jesus. Now, the fact that death is going to be abolished and is a part of what is placed under the feet of Jesus. This gives us insight into what the preacher to the Hebrews meant when he said that we do not yet see all things subjected to mankind. Until death is subjected to mankind, Psalm 8-6 will not be a reality in our lives. But Jesus, this is the point of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Jesus by his resurrection, has made death subject to himself. And at the end of his millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, Jesus will fully and finally and ultimately make death subject to himself when he casts death itself into the lake of fire. And in verse 27, Paul goes on to explain that the Father is the exception to the promise of Psalm 8, verse 6. He says, verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things into subjection to him. And isn't that what Psalm 8, verse 5, expressly says? You have made him a little lower than who? God. All things are under your feet, but you're a little lower than God. Jesus, in taking humanity upon himself, enters into the experience of what God has designed for mankind. And according, back in 1 Corinthians 15, according to verse 28, the Son himself, speaking with reference to his humanity, the Son himself will be subjected to the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will, will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. And what is the great purpose of this? According to verse 28, so that God may be all in all. Now read Psalm 8, verse 9 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David closes this psalm the same way he began it. And isn't this closing word of praise similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 28 so that God may be all in all what does God being all in all mean if not the majesty of his name permeating all the earth you see Jesus by his death and resurrection is bringing us back to Psalm 8 verses 5 through 8 By falling into sin, man demonstrated just how weak he is. And by becoming a man and dying in man's place and rising from the dead, did not God demonstrate just how glorious he is? You see how in the sovereignty of God, even our fall into sin has served to exalt the glory of God even more. And through faith in Jesus Christ, Mankind is being restored to what mankind lost. And the great result of this, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and he causes his people to reign with him under God and he hands the kingdom back over to God, the great result of that will be that God will be all in all in his creation and that his majesty will shine forth brilliantly in all the earth forever and ever. It's only in Jesus Christ that this can become a reality for you. If you do not turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your master and as your savior, then you will die in your sins and you will find yourself crushed under his feet along with all of his other enemies. But if you have surrendered your life to Christ and if you have found him to be your all in all, then you are forgiven of your rebellion and you are being brought back into the experience of Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. And when he returns and we see him face to face and are made just like him, we will finally enter back into what David writes in Psalm 8, 5 through 8. We will become fully and finally those God-glorifying creatures that he designed us to be. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that all of that truth is wrapped up in just nine verses that your Holy Spirit moved David to write in Psalm 8. Lord, I pray that this psalm would grip us in a fresh way, that as we read this psalm, that we would be reminded of what you created this world and mankind to be, that we'd be reminded as we face and fall short of The experience of what that psalm says, may we be reminded of what our sin has cost us and what our sin will ultimately drag us to, death, if we do not turn to you in repentance and faith. And as we read this psalm, may we think about what you did to bring us back into the experience of that psalm that you, God the Son, became a man and you lived a righteous life in our place, and you died an atoning death in our place, and you rose from the dead to justify us if we would trust in you. Help us to think about that when we look at the world around us. Help us to think about what you are doing and what you have done in Christ and what you have done for us, us weak, puny little creatures. Lord, we thank you for the privilege you've given us to glorify you. You don't need us, and that's the point. You desire to use us so that your glory will be ascribed to you alone. Help us, Lord, to gladly take our positions as humble creatures, fully dependent upon you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.